Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. We are here today with Chris Wiley. Chris is the author of several books, Man of the House and The Household and the War for the Cosmos. He also has another upcoming book uh, soon, which we'll ask him about, and in addition to some works of fiction, which are wonderful especially for for younger kids uh, or young adults i'll say but chris thanks for joining us today on the good life we appreciate it well i'm glad to be here matt thanks for asking me sure thing so let's begin with this now you know a lot of people grow up in the faith but your background is not one of growing up as a christian so, so just tell us a little bit about your, your growing up years and, and coming to faith? Sure. Well, uh, my folks originally uh, were Episcopalians, but my father was an academic and my mother was something of an artist. And uh, they both had a kind of bohemian kind of, uh, I guess, outlook. And uh, so my father uh, was at uh, the University of Buffalo and then later at Washington U in St. Louis. And uh, he, uh, he was, I guess, what you would call a seeker. But um, you know, this was the 60s, so late 60s, early 70s. So everybody was seeking, nobody was finding, I guess. But kind of ABC, anything but Christianity, that, that was kind of the, the, the dynamic. And so uh, he got involved in a range of things. My mother kind of was a reluctant tag along. And then eventually he found his way into Scientology. So when I was a kid... In St. Louis, he was full. He was full in, you know, uh, and uh, he's still a Scientologist today. Uh, my mother uh, was kind of a half-hearted Scientologist, I guess. But anyway, um, Scientology is very expensive. Uh, my father uh, left behind his his uh, work at the university there and uh, went on full on staff with Scientology. He was involved with range of things one of those things being the guardian which was kind of like a an organization within the organization that was dedicated to trying to preserve the interests of scientology and it's no longer in existence because it did things that were pretty pretty shady but anyway um hmm. uh he uh he left us he abandoned our family uh but we had uh, had made our way back my mother my sister and i to western pennsylvania where i had been born and uh, it was in that town, a uh, small kind of blue-collar town in western Pennsylvania that I became a friend of a preacher's kid. And because he had to go to church, I went to church. I was all there was to it. There wasn't anything more, um, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, uh, I, I, I kind of uh, significant or profound than that. And it was over the years of our friendship that I had an opportunity to overhear the gospel and I got involved in church events and, and so forth. And before long, I was a convert. And that's kind of the story. So uh, during those years uh, with my mom, my mom was in and out of mental institutions during those uh, teen years. 
and uh, provided uh, virtually no parental supervision. So I was pretty much my own. I spent some time in foster care, but uh, you know, I, I, I uh, was just a regular kid, but when you're a regular kid and you don't have any parental supervision, you get into trouble. You do things you shouldn't do and skip a lot of school. I did that. So I hated eighth grade so much. It took it twice. I tell people. <laughs> so that's my story. So I was, uh, I was not, uh, kind of, a you know, a kid that was really into school. I was not at all. Okay. So now, now you're a pastor. Uh, now, I, and that's, I, I failed to mention that you've pastored in New England for several years, and and but now you're in Washington State. Yeah, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. So yeah, I was in New England uh, for about thirty years, and now I've just been about three months here in the Pacific Northwest. I'm actually right now in South Dakota uh, at a ranch that uh, is for marksmanship. It's a it's a it's a rifle ranch, and so it's pretty cool. I'm here with a bunch of friends. Good, good. So, your background uh, previously, you, you, so you're you're Presbyterian, PCA, but you were right. not always PCA. Uh, so you, you you've had a transition from you know kind of the standard uh, evangelical theology over the years to an emphasis on a, a much more reformed and now household minded ministry uh you know with writing about the household and things like that so what is what caused the change in your thinking from you know standard theology to an emphasis on reformed and now household thinking yeah well it it um so I was an, uh, a Nazarene teaching elder for about 20 years. And uh, so that's the Wesleyan world, kind of the American holiness movement. And it wasn't as though I, I got, you know, a guide to denominations in the United States and decided that's where I want to be. Right. That's just happened to be where my best friend's uh, father was as a pastor. And so, you know, like a lot of people, I was converted in uh, a church that maybe later on I found myself out of step with. But... Um, I'm very grateful to those folks for the love and the interest they, they had, uh, in my, you know, for me and, uh, and directed toward me. And so, you know, I've got, uh, still friends in that world. I, I wrote books in the Nazarene world for the Nazarene publishing house and Beacon Hill books and stuff like that. But, um, kind of the thing I was, I was involved with during those years was urban ministry in Boston. So, I was kind of uh, in the woke world before it was uh, sort of a broad phenomenon. So right. I, I was a kind of a early adopter, I suppose you could say. I mean, I read liberation theologians and different, you know, different things. I was involved with, you know, sort of theological education by extension, pedagogy for the oppressed. Oppressed, you know, Paulo Freire's uh, book uh, was something I, I referred to frequently. And so I, I had actually established an institute in Boston. Uh, that worked with indigenous leaders, meaning just people largely from ethnic churches, people who were recent immigrants, so Haitians, Dominicans, you know, people from India, places like, you know, different different places. And, and those were really fun years, and I enjoyed them very much. But when you are in that world, um, you uh, are, are kind of uh, connecting with people who are more on the evangelical left, and so that was certainly true for me. And even though I was... Uh, 
socially conservative in the sense that I never was at all, in, you know, sort of uh, drawn to or interested in some of the some of the uh, things that were going on with regard to sexual ethics and sort of you know departure departures from scripture on you know family life and so forth. I did find myself uh, you know interested in trying to uh, help people out economically. Right. You know, try, trying to, you know, get get people get involved with business development and different things to help people in the city. And and I had a lot of people, a lot of friends. I was or a lot of people I was connected with. Some more more. I was more, I'm friendly terms with some more than others, of course. But during those years, um, I uh, I spent a little time at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, I was involved with a, a wide range of people from different theological backgrounds. And so I, I, I got further and further uh, sort of into what has become something that everyone is familiar with today, which is sort of the, the woke phenomenon. And I, I was even involved with some of the early uh, sort of uh, attempts to, uh, you know, help evangelical institutions. I say help with quotes, uh, right. you know, you know, make these uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, sort of proactive, uh, you know, you know, there, there was a lot of interest in diversity and I was one of the people in that area that was helping schools kind of become more diverse, et cetera. So, uh, that was all going on. And while that was going on, I met a number of reform guys and, uh, the reform guys, uh, had a tendency to ask questions that, that, uh, certainly Nazarenes never asked, uh, right. but no, they didn't. They didn't ask these questions more broadly uh, in the evangelical world either. But they were good questions, and they had uh, kind of behind them a theology that would lend uh, itself to asking those questions. So, for example, I remember one time talking to a, a Reformed Baptist guy. He was conservative Baptist, but he was Reformed, and uh, and he asked me just sort of in passing, kind of as a rhetorical question, what is the place of the city of Boston in God's providential ordering of, you know, things? No one ever asked that kind of question to me right. before, but it was a great question. And it forced me to think about uh, providence and, you know, God's government, governing of the, of the world. And, and so that led to a series of uh, books and, and, you know, I, I read, you know, Machen's, uh, you know, Christianity and liberalism. I, I got to know uh, Harvey Kahn at Westminster Seminary. I actually wrote for him. Mm. Um, so through these conversations, these friendships, I was trending um, reformed. Uh, after I left Boston, I found myself on Cape Cod, and I was there for about eight years, helped the church grow. It was a great time in many respects. But I was growing more and more reformed as I ministered there. So I had left Boston because I was appalled. There was a point at which I, I saw where things were leading with the whole sort of social justice stuff. And uh, I just withdrew from that, went to Cape Cod, uh, served as a pastor there. But as I served that church, I was, I was growing more and more reformed. And eventually I got to the place where I said, you know, there are things I want to preach and I need to preach that uh, are out of accord with the doctrinal standards of this denomination. And there are things that they want me to preach that I won't preach because I don't I don't agree with them anymore. And you know when you are uh, when you're ordained, you take some vows, and one of those vows is if you ever change your mind right. <laughs> about yeah. these these doctrinal standards, you'll you'll let us know. 
So I said, okay, I got to do that. So I did, and I resigned. But it was not because of any, you know, hard feelings. Uh, it wasn't because of a bad situation. I, I loved the church. The, the people seemed to like me, and uh, things were good. But it was uh, evident that I needed to make that change. And so I, I did, and uh, and as as they say, the rest is history. But I can talk about the rest if you want. But uh, eventually, I found my way into the PCA. The Lord has called you to some of the most beautiful places in the United States, which I'm sure you know. Between, I mean, Boston has great history, and then you were in Connecticut for quite a while. Manchester's a beautiful place. And then, of course, Cape Cod, that's enough said. And now, you know, having lived out west, Washington State, and, you know, the northern Oregon, that's just, that's beautiful. So so I'm happy for you there as well. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I can see I can see Mount St. Helens and Mount Hood from my from my uh, condominium there. Wow, that's praise the Lord. <laughs> so, in your your book, so your first nonfiction book. Tell me if I, if I'm correct here. Your first nonfiction book's Man of the House, correct? Well, actually, no. I wrote stuff for the Nazarene Publishing House, but that was in the early '90s, and it's all out of print, and I'd rather not talk about okay. it. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so. But so in terms of like my second writing career, uh, yes, uh, Man of the House uh, is the book that kind of got things rolling for me. Okay. So how do you talk about from the beginning households and the importance of households? So how do you define a household that's different than the modern way Christians define a household. I mean, a lot of them honestly don't even use the term, but what is it about that term that really jumped, jumps out to you and, and make, makes you think, I want to write a book that talks about households? Well, you're right. I mean, I think that people uh, use the term household as a kind of synonym for family, right. or they might use it as a synonym for a building. So uh, now I don't actually believe in synonyms. I don't think that that words really are precisely the same. Have this precisely the same meaning. Ah, that's you interesting. Know, they, <laughs> I believe that there are there can be overlap, and there can be places where you know there are things that are involved that are similar. But that's a whole other conversation. But I, I the the thing that really sort of caught my my eye was actually. Uh, the more I grew to understand the, uh, the sort of the life, economic life that people have uh, participated in for time out of mind until about 200 years ago, uh, the, 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 the way people thought about it uh, was quite differently, the, the, quite different than the way we think about it today. Because uh, in the past, people thought about households as being economic enterprises. Whereas today, a household is a place where you go after work, unless you work from home. But then people think that's kind of weird. You know, it's sort of like, uh, you know, yeah. this is some kind of new development that's made possible by, you know, technology, uh, communications technology. A comfortable when in fact, office. Right. But when in fact, it's actually a return to the way things were for thousands of years. Uh, so... Um, I can get into that if you'd like. Maybe I'm jumping ahead. And no, no, no. This is fine. 
Okay, well, the word economy, uh, if, you, if you have a background in Greek, you know that it's a compound word or it's an, it's kind of an angle, it's an anglicized, uh, you know, uh, uh, word for a Greek word, oikonomikos. And, uh, oikos, it means is house, uh, in Greek. And then nomos would be law. So it's, uh, an economy is literally, uh, the law of the house, uh, or the management of a house. And, um, when people say the word economy today, they don't think about houses except maybe, uh, you know, uh, new housing starts or something right. you know, like when they think about construction or whatever. So uh, today the economy is, some, is something that, ha- that resides in the marketplace so outside the house or in the workplace. But in the ancient world, the, the and even in the, you know, pre-modern and med- medieval worlds, uh, you had an understanding that the household was a place where productive work occurred and that productive work could, you know, make products for the market that could be sold, or it could simply be a subsistence economy. But either way, you were working productively and providing for yourself and your family and anyone else who lived in the house because a household wasn't a, wasn't believed to be merely a single structure. It was more or less a kind of a, a way to describe uh, how uh, a set of properties were held, productive properties were held by a, uh, uh, you know, most often it would be a married couple, husband and wife. And, uh, you know, they didn't incorporate in, you know, those things, but it was understood that, you know, I guess maybe another way to describe it would be an estate. So it'd be an estate in which uh, maybe you held, you know, the farm, uh, maybe you had some rental properties, maybe you had a business making shoes. And so there were all these things and maybe you had servants or employees who were involved. So a household would be who's ever involved in the productive enterprise, including, including children. So th- this is similar in some ways to the best of the feudal system uh, on a smaller scale, essentially. And of course, the term feudal is from a similar background as federal, which refers to a covenant. So, you know, so, so all these things tie in together with regards to how a household operates. So it's what I hear you saying is the household is a unit, but it's not a nuclear family unit necessarily. It is the the people who live there, but also the properties that are held by that household. And and, and I can say that's whenever I bring this up, what I teach economics to high school students and they know, the ones who do know when I say, what is economics? The best thing they can give me is something about, you know, gross domestic product. I mean, that that's probably the, the, one of the best answers that, that I can elicit. Whereas what you're saying is that up until 200 years ago, it would be the house domestic product that people would think of. So, right. well, then what caused the change? You, so this, you know, so we go back 200 years ago. 
So 1800, 1820, what caused the change in the way we view the household and the way that, that the household is treated from right. before to after? Yeah, one of the best ways to kind of see a before and after uh, is if you've seen the film The Patriot, Mel Gibson's film, which of course is a film about uh, the revolution. But what you have is a head of house, Mel Gibson, uh, representing his family, and they've got a lot of things going on economically, and they ha- they do have slaves, and they do have children who are involved in the household economy. Uh, but everyone is working together uh, to you know basically just make a living, and um, con- you know contrast that with say you know uh, the Simpsons or something, you know, where you've got you know uh, people who uh, are presented, of course, they're comic, they're, they're cartoon characters, but they're presented at home, and it, it's a, it's a kind of a, it's everything is just kind of uh, oriented around uh, recreational life. Uh, of course, there's this absurd sort of dynamic, and I actually think the absurdity of the show is a commentary on the absurdity of of modern you know, way modern houses actually are for, for many people. Um, but what happened between those two things was the industrial revolution in which, uh, productive work left home. It went out of the house and took up residence in the workplace, which would be maybe a factory. Um, or it, you know, it, uh, took up residence exclusively in the market. Now, there were always households that, that were engaged in, uh, you know, selling their, their wares in the market if they were farmers or whatever, you know, but the market became kind of everything and subsistence sorts of, uh, you know, sort of economic activity, everything from educating your children to taking care of the elderly to growing your own food for, you know, for, to, to eat as a, as a household. All that stuff eventually uh, migrated out of the household too. Um, now, in Christian circles and even in non-Christian circles, we've seen a lot of that stuff coming back home. Um, but that's only been within the last maybe 30 years that it, there's been a big movement to do that. Um, I think it began in the 60s. You know, paradoxically, I think uh, uh, you know the hippies were. <laughs> quite uh, helpful in this regard. Uh, their their uh, ideological children are uh, very different than they were in certain respects. I think that's one of the things that people miss. I think they, they, they had a much more sort of a, their ideals very often, not always, but very often were uh, kind of uh, oriented toward recovering the, old, you know, the traditional household. So they were, it was often craft work. It was often, in fact, I think that the hippies were the, were the guy, were the folks initially who, who defied, uh, you know, the authorities when it came to homeschooling, they were homeschoolers often. And, uh, and it was only later that conservative Christians, you know, joined in the fight. Um, but anyway, so, uh, what, what you have is this, uh, this migration of just about every kind of productive work, whether it was for the market economy to make money or just to survive or just to take care of your own 
sort of family needs, like when you take care of the elderly in your in your house, or you know, you take care of children. You know, all that stuff has now been kind of commodified and, and branded, and it's all kind of out there someplace else. And so we think that you know, economic uh, activity is legitimate when it's done someplace outside the house. Right. Uh, and, you know, so for example, if you were, you know, you, like uh, many uh, traditional women who want to, uh, you know, focus on many of the things that their great grandmothers would have focused on, child care, elder care, you know, working in, in, you know, various ways in and around the house productively, they're, uh, they, they have a lot of, uh, kind of cultural wind that they're having to sort of push through, you know, there's a, they're being encouraged to get out of the house all the time. They're accused of being lazy. They're accused of having no drive and ambition. Uh, you know, they're accused of being retrograde or under the, under the thumb of some, you know, maniacal controlling man, you know, all this kind of stuff. Right. And, and. And there are, there, there, you know, there, some of, some of these women are, are just always having to defend, you know, themselves as, uh, and, and, and say, Hey, I am productive. <laughs> I work a lot, you know, yes. you know, and uh, these things I do are important and essential. I may not be paid for them. Uh, but I, I do them for love, you know, or because they're just need, need to be done. So anyway, um, all of this stuff, I think, uh, is sort of like the unintended consequences because of the Industrial Revolution. I, I've read uh, in a, a few different places, but, but the statement made that you don't get feminism without having the Industrial Revolution first. You don't. I think that's absolutely right. Yep. You, you, you don't get transhumanism. You don't get the, the degree of reliance on artificial intelligence without the industrial revolution. And not, as, as one author that I've read recently said, it, it's not that factories themselves are at fault. You know, ha having a, a method of making things, you know, like you mentioned, Mel Gibson, the Patriot, you know, people in the 1700s, the households had machines. They were not against anything mechanized, but it was the mindset that it brought of relying on someone outside the household to do this. And, and, and am I tracking with, with generally what you, what your perspective is on this? Yeah, I think that's right. I think, too, that there was a kind of revolution in thought that was uh, occurring at the same time. Uh, it's kind of a chicken and the egg kind of thing. But I think that uh, there was a time prior to the Industrial Revolution when people saw the world quite differently than they do today. And this is these are sweeping generalizations. Right. But, for example... Um, people believe that the world was already ordered according to the wisdom of God. Um, and therefore, to, to regard the natural order as merely 
raw material to be sort of uh, cut up and sort of refashioned and, and, and re sort of purposed. Uh, now all those things were, were, you know, happened, you know, uh, you know, we had uh, water driven uh, milling of wood as early, I think as like the, maybe the 13th century. Yes. Uh, so there were, there were some pretty large machines that were in place, but people tended to think that they were, they were kind of working uh, within a larger order, creating smaller orders. And uh, today, people just, I think, strictly think of the, if they think about a natural order, they think about it as something that uh, has no sort of in- intelligence behind it uh, and is not a source of wisdom. It's merely a kind of a set of uh, laws, if they even use that term, uh, that just uh, happen to be, to be in place or happen to exist that we kind of have to deal with. But there's no there's no sort of sense that in the order of things, to get to one of your examples with regard to transhumanism, um, that in the order of things, human beings are made in a particular way uh, because uh, in the wisdom of God, the, the forms that we possess at, you know, as human beings, but also as men and women, uh, are intended to function in, in ways that bring glory to God. Uh, today, people think of their bodies just as another kind of natural resource, and right. they can refashion them however they please. And, uh, you know, no thought is given to what God intended or even what these potential changes might lead to, <laughs> you know, there's just a kind of like, well, we'll let that take care of itself almost. No consideration of second and third tier consequences. So, right. so it seems that at some point and different people have different perspectives on who to blame or, or when, whether you, whether you blame nominalist, whether you blame Francis Bacon uh, you know, the, the general, the secularizing effects of, of some in the scientific revolution, but nature went from uh, a gift of God that was alive with his grandeur, that displayed his order to now something to simply be conquered. Something. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, yeah, that's so. Right. So there is a now a we're having to work out of a different frame, uh, a totally secularized frame, which is something that you you point away from in Man of the House. Although Man of the House is not, it's not first and foremost a religious work. It's it's not written from the perspective of a pastor as a pastor it's uh what would you call your perspective is it more philosophical uh is it just uh you know how how would you describe the the voice that you give to man of the house yeah i uh what i'm presenting is something that would make sense to everyone from the, the apostle paul to seneca uh and i put it that way precisely because the apostle paul and intellectual of the first century, 
Seneca, an intellectual of the same general time period. These, uh, these were men who lived in a household-centered economy, right? And uh, the things that they took for granted were things that they shared in common. <laughs> and so, yes. uh, so like in the, in the, I think it was either the, the fourth, perhaps the fifth century, there was a fellow named Xenophon who actually wrote a, a kind of a manual uh, two households called Oikonomikos. And uh, if there had been a Barnes and Noble in the first century and you went to the self-help section, right. there would be his book. Yes. Everybody knew about it. It was a bestseller. Uh, Cicero, if I remember correctly, translated it into Latin. Uh, everybody thought it was great. And it was basically uh, a book uh, in which the protagonist Socrates, so Xenophon was like Plato, he, he you know, wrote dial, platonic dialogues. And uh, in it, uh, Socrates uh, interviews two different people. One, uh, a man who is a, a failing household, you know, head, and another who is a successful and prosperous household head. And he wants to see how are they, how are they different? How do they manage their households? And why is one succeeding and the other failing? So that's uh, the book. And uh, you know, one of the very first things that is addressed in that book, even then, is the distinction between uh, a building and productive property <laughs> and, you know, these things. So uh, some questions the, always uh, need to be answered. <laughs> right. So I would say that that man of the house is a kind of update or a kind of translation in sort of concepts uh, when it comes to concepts of Oikonomikos, uh, you know, from, you know, the, 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 you know, the fourth century BC to the modern world. And my, my argument is that, uh, the stuff that they talked about then was true then and for centuries afterward, and it's still true today, although there is this significant, uh, you know, challenge to it in certain respects, but, uh, meaning the industrial age and so forth. But anyway, so I, I would say that it's, it's, you know, a mashup of Oikonomikos and, you know, uh, my, my thoughts and reflections upon it as a Christian and a pastor who's drawing on the, the Bible to show, for one thing, that all the things that, you know, are addressed in Oikonomikos uh, were also things that Christians were interested in. And, uh, for example, the household codes reflect a way of thinking that would have been very familiar to Xenophon and Seneca and, obviously, the Apostle Paul. <laughs> they, were all, yes. they were all on the yes. same page with that stuff. The difference, of course, is that the Apostle Paul, uh, you know, uh, presents, uh, you know, the household co codes within the framework of the Christian faith within the framework of how these roles glorify Christ and how they are all actually ways of serving Christ through roles in households. And, and those household codes, uh, for anyone who may not be familiar, th those are the, the admonitions from Paul to husbands, wives, children, and servants. Uh, right given in Ephesians and Colossians and also, I mean, Paul's not the only one though. Uh, Peter does the same. Yeah. 
and, and and of course, they're not the only ones in ancient times to do that. You've mentioned Xenophon, Aristotle does the same thing. So th- this was prominent, needing to know what your role is and how to live it in the household was common for them. Right. It, it's not just a matter, as, as many of us see it today, and not us as in you and I, but, but Christians in general, as a, a list of how much do I have to do okay. in order to get by and stay within the pale of, of being biblical as, you know, in, in our conservative evangelical backgrounds, you know, everybody wants to stay within what the Bible teaches, but there's always this drive in our human heart, our sinful heart to try to get as, as, as close as we can to the limit so that we can step over. But this requires an entirely different view this is not, if you have this ancient view, you can't simply try to skirt the issue by conforming to the ver- the, the words while ignoring the heart. You have to stay within it if, if you're doing it in the from the perspective that Paul and others present. Right, you know, I think one way to sort of reframe things for people, let's take... Uh, uh, something that uh, generally is is ignored today, but uh, not in ways that people might assume. I guess so. Uh, when we think about head coverings, okay, that can be a controversial matter in certain circles. But for the for the most part, uh, evangelicals, broadly speaking, and certainly anybody you know in mainline Christianity, even Catholicism anymore. Uh, we'll just dismiss it as those things as cultural. You know, that's something that you would do in that culture. So when you when you follow up with a person uh, who says something like that uh, and ask that person, what do you, what do you think that that particular practice? How you know what purpose did it serve? In other words, here's a cultural practice that must have served some purpose. Uh, then the default position is the patriarchy. You know, it's some kind of maniacal. Uh, oppressive regime that was intended to keep women in, you know, sort of their place. Yes. So it, that's a that's a very ungenerous way of regarding our ancestors. For one thing, uh, I think they were a lot smarter than we give them credit for. But it also demonstrates a phenomenal ignorance about many of the things that uh, they didn't possess that we take for granted in our society today. So let me just give you sort of a run, run rundown of it. So uh, in a in a in a in a pre-modern world, um, one of the ways that you signaled uh, to people who did not know your household and in the members who belonged to it that a woman had protection was by her head covering. So what it what it what it's what it uh, communicated was this woman has a husband. This woman may have uncles, may have a father. Uh, in other words, uh, you take your life into your own hands if you mess with this woman. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, something like that. <coughs> no one thinks in those terms now. But what's fascinating is that uh, if a woman uh, is employed by a, you know, just 
I don't know, McDonald's. And she's told, put on this hat. It will tell everybody that you are part of McDonald's. She won't have any qualms. That's not that. oppressive. That's right. That's uh, I want to let the world know that I work for this wonderful corporation. Yes. Even if she, even if she doesn't think that, she won't even uh, raise a raise a, a you know uh, an objection, um, uh, because uh, it's just kind of understood. This is not an oppressive act. This is a way to communicate to people that you have a connection to this company. So why wouldn't men need to do that? Well, I already explained why men would need to do that. But there are other ways that men would sort of signal uh, something some you know similar uh, that had to do with uh, you know their own responsibilities. But anyway, uh, what I, what I'm trying to bring to the surface is that our prejudices blind us. Yes. To uh, things that are really not all that complicated, but just require a little sympathy and imagination to understand. And seeing that, while I will not get into it, but, but having you know read a little bit about, I mean, Paul says that we do this because of the angels. And, well, yeah, yeah. And there are, <laughs> there are scholars, uh, and I, I think we, we both probably know, based on your last Theology Pugcast, which for everyone, Chris and some other guys do a the, the Theology Pugcast every week, and it's wonderful, and you should listen to it but you know that 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 element of protection according to paul goes further than just physical protection that's right that's right it, it, <coughs> go ahead i'm sorry and so so that, that that does take us then though into a realm that we we don't normally think of because some people would say yes okay i'm I'm all with this. I've got a little hippie in me anyway. I like thumbing my nose at big government and especially big corporations. So I'm fine. But there's more in your second book, The Household and War for the Cosmos. You don't leave it at merely the what you can see. This is not a materialist perspective. And so you bring out the cosmic elements of the household, which really, in my opinion, undergirds the argument. And this book, or that book, is written as a man, uh, a pastor, who understands that there's more to life than what we can see and touch. So, so talk about what is the the role? What role does the household play in? spiritual warfare so at this point you know we may need to explain a little bit about what the the cosmos is uh in in your title but but i'm interested to to pursue the the discussion of the household's role in you know spiritual warfare and and, and things like that sure yeah uh to get to that, though, you're right. We need to talk about what a cosmos is. So uh, when we use that term today, we think of Carl Sagan and cosmos, or who is the who is the guy that did the updated version? Uh, Neil something. Neil deGrasse Tyson or something like I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, you remembered it, I think. So uh, what they're talking about is, uh, you know, physics essentially, and they're looking at sort of the structure of the physical universe. 
and they're trying to describe it, you know, uh, in terms of the discoveries that have been made uh, with regard to, you know, planets and, you know, the expanse that we see around us uh, in the night sky and, and all of that. And I'm all for that. I think that's great. But um, the way the word was employed in ancient times included that, but it, but it also uh, got to these unseen realities. And what it meant in the minds of both pagans and Christians, Jews, everybody, was the order of things. So, think the, the, so it's the order of things at the largest level. So if we think about it that way, we could say it's the, it's the, it's the order that has been instituted either by God, and certainly that's the way Christians and Jews thought, or by the gods, you know, and just just name your pantheon. You know, you could be in China, you could be in South America, you could be in, well, Greece and Rome, and you had your pantheon of gods. And and then there was some story uh, uh, that explained how the order was established. But um, households in most um, cultures were in some some way a microcosm of the larger cosm. You know, yes. So a microcosm is a small cosmos. So microcosmos, you could say, you know, put it that way, and macrocosmos. So cosmos, micro, microcosm, and then cosm. So, uh, and a household reflected the larger order, and if it didn't, it would fail. Yes. That's the kind of the assumption. So if, so if the larger order uh, is productive, then the small order should be productive. If the larger order um, is rational, then the small order should be rational. Um, if the larger order is governed by a head, then the smaller order should be governed by a head. You see how this, this works. Right. Now, where the, where the war comes in, where, where spiritual warfare uh, it comes into play, is that um, Christians... Uh, and Jews in the in the first century uh, understood that the order had been contested. There was a rebellion, and that the rebels had uh, taken ground, taken taken territory, and particularly in Ephesians, we see the Apostle Paul referring to this present darkness and cosmic powers and so forth, the prince of the power of the air, and yes. all of these things. He's referring to these these rebellious uh, sort of sub authorities. It'd be, you could kind of think about it like the relationship between, say, uh, you know, a, uh, a head of state, you know, an executive and a regional governor who is is sort of working against the the, uh, the you know, sort of the government governing authority at the highest level. So there's a there's kind of like a rebellious province. You've got maybe an ambitious nullification. Local. Yeah, right. So. So there's this this tension between, you know, the highest level of order and a kind of middle level of order, you could say. Yes. Mid, sort of in the middle. So like when you think about why the prince of the power of the air, prince of the power of the air is not just a poetic turn of phrase, which is the way I think most people today regard it. They're just it like, is. oh, isn't that clever? Or they may just say, I'm not thinking about that. I have no clue what he's talking about. <laughs> you know, That's when Paul the easiest says that. way. That's right. But if you understand that the cosmos uh, that Paul is describing is a layered thing, 
and that there are regions that are in rebellion. The Prince of the Power of the Air is the authority closest to the ground where we are, and and it envelops us. We find ourselves in a kind of dark region uh, in which um, there is, uh, you know, the, 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 the will of the creator is contested. And so this is the place where uh, spiritual warfare is conducted. And that's why, you know, the Apostle Paul at the end of, of Ephesians lays out a, a suit of armor for, for every Christian to wear and says, okay, get into the fight. Right. But uh, households are a part of that fight and a very significant part of the fight, uh, far more significant than I think most people generally appreciate. So there would be then a link there. There's a reason why Paul goes from talking about the household. He gives a a household code that is not just stolen, but that is reformed in the sense of it is now imbued with power from God's Spirit. And he goes directly from that to... Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God and so on and so forth. So Paul is is commanding the household leaders to do what Abraham did in the Old Testament in Genesis and to train your household for warfare. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's something, again, that's completely lost in us. Um, so going back to Oikonomikos by, by Xenophon, um, when uh, the householder uh, who is the, you know, sort of exemplar of, of, of good household management is, is talking about his role in the house, one of the things he says is, I, I make certain that I have plenty of time uh, in the course of my week to practice horsemanship and other martial arts. <laughs> yeah. So what that meant, <laughs> what that meant is, is that it's my responsibility to defend my household. I don't sit back and send all the servants to go fight the fight. I actually right. go out and fight other household heads uh, to defend our our households and our city, the polis. And uh, so this is understood. So one of the reasons why a, a father uh, was the head of house, one of the reasons, not the sole reason, but one of the reasons, is that like a king. He defended his house. You know, it was his job to go out and fight for his house. Um, today, we've got police officers and, you know, National Guardsmen. We've got standing armies. We've got all of these things, these institutions, which, by the way, are only, uh, you know, possible because we have a lot of surplus capital to be able yes. to fund these things. Uh, they didn't have that kind of surplus capital. Um, but. That's another reason why we, we, we wonder, you know, about the roles that Paul is describing, you know, in Colossians and Ephesians is because we don't see the connections the way people would have intuitively understood those connections in the first century. Now, does that mean we need to get rid of the police forces and all that? Kind of, no, no, it doesn't mean that. But I, but I think that uh, there are still things that are true that... Um, uh, you know, I think can be uh, adapted to the modern situation. But getting back to this main point, if you fo- if you follow through, we got a bunch of guys coming back from the gun range here. So, okay. uh, if you hear a bunch of people talking, this is this is what's going on. So anyway, we've got 
these guys who are, well, we've got Paul describing, you could say almost in a kind of descending order. You've got church where he talks about uh, the church uh, being, a, you know, demonstrating to the principalities and powers, the wisdom of God. If you look back in chapter three of, 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 of Ephesians, he's describing the work of the church. Then he talks about the household and its order. And there's something very important in, you know, his description of that, of the household that has to do with the end of the world, you know, in terms of the uh, bride of Christ and Christ the groom and the, you know, consummation of all things. And then we've got, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the armor uh, and, uh, you know, given to individuals. So there's a kind of, you could say, you know, church, household, individual, and it all comes together. Yeah, we have a uh, historic mansion that's a short rental. So anyway, that's uh, that's, uh, kind of a, kind of, hey, so anyway, uh, they're all heading inside. It's about dinner time here. So anyway, I think that that ties into what you said, though. Yes. And, and, you know, of course, your your main emphasis in, in that book, or one of them, is piety. Uh, right. and, and how piety was important in the household. So I, I, I don't, I don't, we don't have a lot longer. So, but, but I, I want to just if, as briefly as possible, that term piety is filled with a lot of ideas, again, that are very modern, that we have really just, we, we've lopped off all the limbs of piety to, to make it only vertical. And it, it, it's you doing your basic Bible reading and prayer and helping ladies across the old ladies across the street. Yeah, right, right. Uh, but, but, but you expand that. So, so what is piety in the ancient and biblical sense? And what, what does it look like right. today? Well, the word piety comes from the Latin pius, and uh, it, it's, 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 it's a, a term that ref, that's a, uh, addressing your duties. So duties to your benefactors, and those benefactors are both human and divine. So uh, a pious son, of course, would make sacrifice to the God that he served or his household served, that would be certainly the case, but he would also obey his father. So, because he would be giving due reverence and regard to his father, who was his benefactor, human benefactor. So there, there is a series of, you know, sort of a network of obligations that every person had. And uh, it was pious to obey the governing authority. It was a, it was a, an act of piety to, to go to the temple and make a sacrifice. It was a, it was pious to obey your mother. It was, these these things are are pious. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, the word is eusebio. That's the Greek word, and it means precisely the same thing. <laughs> um, so right. you you run you run into it, uh, you know, in different places uh, in the New Testament. Uh, you know, in places like Romans, we're, we're told to give due regard to the governing authorities. But the word is Eusebio. But that would also be a word that would be applied to God, you know, giving reverence to God. You know, so yes. um, 
we tend to think about piety as something that's exclusively directed toward God, but isn't something that uh, is directed toward people. And that's because we've lost uh, a sense uh, that, you know, piety, you know, historically, uh, both in the Bible and outside it, was something that was due to anyone to whom you had uh, some debt, uh, you know, to whom you owed a debt. Yes. Um, because of their uh, their role in making you who you are. So it's much it's much wider in regards, especially again to your household obligations, and each household would have their own their own god, uh, little g god, you know, in the pagan Roman sense. So which Paul again, it seems like turns on its head because now every Christian household, the household god is Jesus Christ, who right. is you know right. to whom they owe their their debt. So, right. so you, you have these two books. Now you have a third coming out at some point on Tom Bombadil that relates to your other household books. It, it, what, what is, what is the main gist of that? You know, for, I know some of the people who listen are Lord of the Rings fans. So what, what, if you're not, you know, you could check this out on, uh, you, you know, look, look it up, see who Tom Bombadil is. But what's the status on that book? And, and what's just a general thesis that you're writing about in that in relation to your, your other two? Yeah, well, it's uh, in uh, the final stages uh, of uh, production right now. Uh, the Tolkien estate wanted me to make uh, a few changes. Uh, they wanted me to to uh, take uh, some of the quotations and shorten them so that I didn't have, you know, more, uh, you know, you know, you know uh, material from the, you know, the books that, that uh, were in my book that uh, kind of violated the understood norms when it comes to, you know, working with published right. works. When, you, when you're writing literary criticism, which is this, what, what this is, um, you, you can only quote so much, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, these are someone else's, these words are someone else's property, but you do have, uh, a, you know, yes. some parameters that you can, you can, uh, work, work in. And, uh, so I'm reworking some things, summarizing, paraphrasing, etc. And, uh, hopefully I'll have all that stuff done by the end of May. And uh, they'll they'll be able to crank it out pretty quick after that. So I'm hoping that by midsummer the book will be out. Uh, but in terms of how it fits into this Good. sort of trilogy of books, uh, the high, the title of the book is in the House of Tom Bombadil, and in that book I look at Tom. And if you're familiar with the story, uh, Tom is usually a person that people wonder what in the world is he doing in this book. You know, he doesn't seem to serve any purpose. Yes, but I actually think he serves a very large purpose. And that purpose is a, is a foil to the, um, the, the exercise of fallen dominion. So fallen dominion, we see, you know, in the persons of Saran and Saruman and, you know, the wicked, powerful characters in the story uh, who uh, dominate. Tom is not, not a dominator, but Tom exercises dominion yes. 
So what I do in the yes. story is try to sh sort of bring to the surface the difference between dominion and domination. Because when you use the term uh, dominion today, most people think domination. So the, the person who comes to mind mm -hmm. when you say dominion to someone is Saruman. <laughs> right. When when yes. the person that would be closer to what you should be thinking of is Tom. Now, he's not the only character who exercises dominion well. Obviously, there's Aragorn and there's Gan Gandalf and Elrod and so forth. And, and those are all great characters. But uh, Tom is almost like a like a I don't know. Uh, he's so extreme that he's like, uh, yes, um, almost comic. Well, he is comic <laughs> in so in so yes. far as, uh, <laughs> you know, what he does is just seems absurd. Uh, but you, you're left with the impression that Tom may be more powerful than, than Saran. And there's a particular scene in the story where this comes to the surface. And so a lot of people who, who have reflected on that scene wonder, well, if Tom is that powerful, why doesn't he do more in the story? So I talk a little bit about that too. But uh, it's a very... At least for me, I felt it was a very fruitful uh, exercise to think about Tom and write about him. Particularly since, well, you know, I believe in exercise. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, that's right. Go ahead. Yeah, he he's, uh, I think, uh, he's so easily dismissed. Uh, but also, I think uh, when, you know, for example, when I say I think that we ought to take dominion. Um, the, the thing that many people hear, including people in the church, even in reformed churches, what they hear you saying is we ought to impose by draconian and oppressive means our personal will, <laughs> which is what yes. Saruman would do or Saran would do. The Christian Inquisition. That's right. That's right. 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 So anyway, that's that's Tom. Well, and uh, that yeah, yeah, go ahead. So that's 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 all I have to say about Tom. Well, for me, okay. Well, I know for me, he is my favorite character in the book, and I have, you know, I, I've I've read what little I can find about him, which is not very much. I, I, I don't know many monographs that exist that focus on him. So I've been anticipating this for a while. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's coming out and looking forward to seeing how it, it relates because, you know, we're essentially back where we started talking about, you know, the way that you one views nature, whether you try to control it or you know, dominate it, or whether you you mold it and you are act as a steward or as a shepherd of it, the way that he seems to. In an interestingly enough, as we just are, have gone through that scene again recently as a family, in, in a somewhat hostile area. I mean that that forest oh, yeah. is not you know just some national park where where he is. It said. It's, it, we would think of it as a rough neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely so, right. And I work with that a lot. I work with that a lot in the writing. Good, 
good. Well, I, I won't ask you any more until the book comes out. So it's published through Canon. Is that correct? Right. Okay, good. Well, Chris, I appreciate it. And uh, it's been great having this conversation with you. So I, I will, uh, you know, tell you that we're looking forward to, to, to that book. And I know you, you also have your fiction books, which we didn't discuss. And I know those are, you're working on your, your second part of that trilogy. So that'll be good as well. So thanks for, for taking some time and talking with us this afternoon. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. I have enjoyed it. Thank <laughs> you.